Throughout the country, on lonely roads where young women have died, ghost stories have been born from their tragedy. In the early 1940s, folklorists Richard Beardsley and Rosalie Hankey cataloged these stories for an issue of California Folklore Quarterly, and the title of their article would give the phenomena a name, The Vanishing Hitchhiker. This season, we will track down these tales, step back through history, and sift through the unique details of each story to determine whether a real local tragedy has been interwoven with the familiar urban legend. I'm your host, Jason, and this is Epitaph. Mike McNeil was on his way home, winding his way down Highway 107 toward Walhalla, South Carolina. He'd just passed South Carolina 413 and its scenic overlook when his headlights outlined the silhouette of a man. The man was walking alongside the road, hunched over, with his collar turned up, battling the rain. McNeil did something that wasn't uncommon in those days. He slowed down and pulled over beside him, cranking his window down. You need some help? He asked. I'm on my way toward Wahala and can give you a lift. The man nodded. I would certainly appreciate it. McNeil reached across the car and unlocked the passenger door, pushing it open so the man could get in. McNeil remembers that he was drenched rivulets of water dripping from his hair and small winding streams flowing along each fold of his black raincoat. The man's shoes were such a muddy mess, it was hard to tell that human feet were inside them. I need to get out at Moody Spring, the man said. It was just a couple miles down the road. You sure? There's not much there, McNeil replied. Yeah, I've got to stop there before I can get home, the stranger said. McNeil remembered thinking that there was something odd about the stranger, something that didn't quite sit right and the man's face was so blank and expressionless that it made his skin crawl. He didn't say much the rest of the ride, and when he pulled over at Moody Springs, the stranger got out of the car without thanking him or saying goodbye, and then he disappeared like vapor. McNeil was shaken as he drove the rest of the way home. He'd almost talked himself into believing that he'd imagined the whole thing, but the next morning, his car seat was still wet, and there was mud on his floorboards. Oconee County, the westernmost county in the state of South Carolina, took its name from a Cherokee town that was located along the main British Cherokee trading path between the port city of Charleston and the Mississippi River in the early 1700s. In 1777, that town became part of the edge of the Cherokee Treaty Boundary, and a frontier outpost of the same name was built nearby by the South Carolina State Militia. By 1816, though, the Cherokee Nation had sold the last of its remaining land in South Carolina and moved west. In 1849, trustees of the German Colonization Society of Charleston bought nearly 18,000 acres of land from Reverend Joseph Grisham, 16 miles northwest of what is now Clemson. There, in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, they founded the town of Wahala. The U.S. Forestry Service sent a group to evaluate the region in 1901, and Franklin Roosevelt proclaimed the creation of Sumter National Forest in 1936, after demand for timber to support the war efforts of World War I deforested much of the South. That forest, made up of three non-contiguous sections in western South Carolina, was established using mostly lands that, at that point, were little more than eroded farm fields, gullies, and extensively logged forests. The area closest to Wahala was named the Andrew Pickens Ranger District, and it spans more than 84,000 acres, with more than a dozen waterfalls and springs. This is the only part of South Carolina where you'll find the rural hilly road known as Highway 107. As you travel north, Highway 107 climbs into the Blue Ridge Mountains, and going south, it descends toward the Piedmont region. Along Highway 107, there are scenic overlooks for drivers to pull off and enjoy the beauty of the region, places like the Piedmont Overlook and Moody Springs. That's also where, 
According to legends, on rainy nights, you might encounter the ghost of Larry Stevens. According to the legend, Larry Stevens was a solitary man, quiet, maybe a little shy. As far as a physical description goes, most people who knew him say that he had straight blonde hair, blazing blue eyes, and a long, thin nose. But apart from his love of flying and the black raincoat he usually wore, most people wouldn't have been able to tell you much else about him. They say he kept a small, single-engine plane at the Greenville-Spartanburg Airport in the late 1950s. It was a bright yellow thing, trimmed with black, and flying it made him feel more bold and more daring than he ever did when he was on the ground. He made his final pre-flight checks on a bright afternoon in April, and then taxied out to the runway. Takeoff was smooth, and a few minutes later he had left the airport behind headed for the mountains. Looking down at lush green valleys, the purple shadows spreading over the mountain's western flanks in the ruddy golden light of sunset. And then, as he turned to head home, he noticed there were clouds building. Tall thunderheads. He'd had a healthy respect for bad weather, but he didn't have much choice but to try to beat it back to Greenville. A few drops of rain hit the windshield, and then it was a downpour. The sound of the rain built to a slow, steady roar that he could hear even over the engine. The turbulent air caused his little yellow and black plane to bounce and buck and nervous sweat built on his forehead. The weather had closed in, and all he could do was fly on. And then silence. The vibrating sound of the plane's engine and the slight quiver of the stick had stopped. No cough, no sputter, just silence. The last sound Larry Stevens would ever hear would be the sound of rain pounding on his plane as he watched the altimeter unwind. A plane flying over the area near Wahala a few days later spotted the wreckage. It was up near Highway 107. Search teams combing the woods found a trail of wreckage starting near Moody Springs, a little natural spring that the U.S. Forest Service had beautified for tourists. It seemed impossible that anybody would have survived the crash, but no body was ever recovered. Not long after the crash, though, people began to tell of strange occurrences along that stretch of Highway 107. After Mike McNeil picked up the stranger that night in the early 70s, the one who disappeared without a word after getting out at Moody Springs, he was so shaken by the experience that he went to the headquarters of Oconee State Park and spoke with Superintendent Bob Cothran about it. Cothran told McNeil that his story wasn't as strange as he might think. In fact, he'd heard it from dozens of other people. Sometimes it had been campers in the park who'd raised concerns about a quiet man in a black raincoat they'd seen walking through the darkness alongside the road. One time it had been a Baptist minister who, on a miserable rainy night, Saw a man walking and feeling sorry for him offered him a ride. The stranger asked to be let out at Moody Springs. But I thought you said you were going back to Greenville, the preacher said. The stranger nodded. Don't worry, I'll get there. Cothran said it was always the same story, though. The hitchhiker in his black raincoat, the dark rainy night, asking to be let out at Moody Springs, and then, in every case, he disappears as he steps away from the car. The only explanation Cothran could offer was a plane crash 16 years ago. In the late 50s, he said, a plane had gone down somewhere near Moody Springs. Its only occupant, a pilot named Larry Stevens, was never found. But that doesn't mean people hadn't seen him since then. Of all of the variations of the Vanishing Hitchhiker theme that we'll be covering this season, this story is one of my favorites. But as much as I like the story, if we're to take it as factual as Nancy Roberts wrote it, it runs into a number of concerning issues. First, though I'm willing to accept the possibility that Roberts changed the name of the ill-fated pilot in her story, 
No one named Larry Stevens died in South Carolina in the 1950s. The two nearest deaths that I can find that would match the name and date that Roberts gave are Larry Orville Stevens. He was a furniture salesman who passed away on July 22, 1963. His cause of death was shown as a pulmonary edema while recovering from a broken leg that he had sustained in an auto accident. The other was Larry Lee Stevens, who died at just three months of age in 1949. I think it's probably safe to say that neither of these are the Larry Stevens of the Highway 107 legend. Another issue is with the airport that Roberts claimed that her pilot flew from. According to her story, Stevens kept his plane at the Greenville-Spartanburg Airport. But the Greenville-Spartanburg Airport wasn't opened until October 15th of 1962. So if her pilot died in the late 1950s, it would have been impossible for his plane to have been hangered there. If he did indeed fly out of Greenville, it would have had to have been the Greenville Municipal Airport. And even ignoring that historical error, a search on the Aviation Safety Network's database for crashes of aircraft that could have fit the story that Roberts put forth that departed from either of the Greenville airports comes up completely empty. One of my main concerns with this story, though, is that I can't find a version that predates Nancy Roberts' book, South Carolina Ghosts. I can't find any reference to her hitchhiker anywhere before he's written about in her book. And most of the stories that I could find referencing the legend were actually just stories about her story. That means that the only source for this story is Nancy Roberts. So it's possible that Roberts invented the story herself. As we noted in our episode for The Girl at the Underpass, Roberts wrote her stories to entertain her audience, not necessarily for factual accuracy. Just a few years after her book was published, it was suggested that she may have even plagiarized the story. The Greenville News reported a man from Nebraska called concerning Nancy Roberts' story about the hitchhiker who walks Highway 107, a hitchhiker believed to be the ghost of a pilot who crashed on a rainy night near Moody Springs in Oconee County, wrote the Greenville News. Roberts, of course, denied the charge. I hadn't copied anybody's story, she said. They just had a similar story because a similar event happened. And, in all fairness to her, while I couldn't find the similar story she referred to, Roberts was absolutely correct about the commonality of elements of the various vanishing hitchhiker legends. But just because the details that Roberts gave about the pilot and the airport were wrong, that doesn't mean that all of the details were. There are other details of her story that are verifiable. For example, Bob Cothran was indeed the superintendent of the Oconee State Park from the late 70s to the early 80s. His name and job title appear in local papers from 77 to 83 in interviews ranging from the availability of campsites during a Memorial Day weekend, to concerts in the park, to the changing color of leaves in late October. And it seems strange to me that she'd make claims about a real person if he hadn't really said that he had heard about drivers encountering something on Highway 107. In fact, if I were to bet, I'd guess that it was Bob Cothran, rather than Mike McNeil, that may have been Nancy Roberts' source for the legend. But if the man in the dark raincoat walking Highway 107 isn't Larry Stevens, who could he have been? There may have been a few deaths on that road, including a murder and at least three fatal plane crashes that may well explain the presence of a ghost looking for rides along that stretch of highway. On March 21st of 1943, 15-year-old Seb Crane was riding his horse along the Moody Trail, going from his home in a mountain town called Chiohi to visit relatives when suddenly his horse balked at something just off the trail. He didn't pause to investigate and instead galloped two and a half miles to the Tri-State Fishing Club. There, he asked what could have spooked his horse and the caretaker, Ben Rogers, had no idea what the cause would have been. So Rogers went back with Crane to investigate. What the horse had seen was the motor of a B-25 Army Air Corps bomber. 
From that point in the trail, only the motor could be seen. But just a few hundred yards farther, most of the rest of the bomber had plowed into an embankment in a ravine. The plane had left Meriden, Mississippi en route to Donaldson Army Air Base in Greenville on March 10th. On its way down, the plane had clipped the tops off of trees along the peak of the mountain and crashed just off the road about a mile south of the Wahala State Fish Hatchery. This would put it right in the area of Moody Spring. It had cut a path through the trees that was more than a quarter of a mile long. The plane was reported missing on the morning of March 11th, but a search along its expected route was unsuccessful. It had hit with such impact that its second motor was thrown almost as far beyond the wreckage as the wreckage was from its first motor. The engine had shown signs of having caught fire, but constant rains for the days between the crash and its discovery had kept it from spreading to the forest or the other wreckage. Five men died in the crash. Flight Officer Richard Brooke, the pilot from Lima, Ohio. Second Lieutenant Earl Monroe, co-pilot from Bolivar, New York. Second Lieutenant Philip Graziano, navigator from Lawrence, Massachusetts. Staff Sergeant Harvey Capelman, engineer from Blanchard, Ohio. And Sergeant Michael Seckel, radio operator from Buffalo, New York. Its five occupants appeared to have been killed instantly. Three were thrown from the plane on impact and were said to have been found laying just as they'd fallen. One was still in his seat, and the fifth was found tangled in the wreckage. A wristwatch worn by one of the crewmen indicated that the flight had crashed at 9.30 p.m. Army Air Corps authorities determined that the cause of the crash was heavy rain and dense fog. Fourteen years later, on the afternoon of October 30, 1957, a search plane with the Civil Air Patrol discovered the wreckage of a small Piper aircraft off of Highway 107, about a mile from the U.S. fish hatchery, in almost the exact same place that the B-25 had gone down. Searchers had to climb through a mile of rugged terrain just to reach the scene. There, they found the bodies of Charlotte industrialist Harry Shaw Jr., his wife, and their pilot, Ben Gunn. The three had gone missing more than a week earlier, not long after the plane had departed from Atlanta. Shaw, the owner of Shaw Manufacturing Company of Charlotte, had taken his wife to Atlanta for medical treatment. Their pilot, Ben Gunn, who'd recently moved to Atlanta from Charlotte, hadn't filed a flight plan. And a short while after takeoff, Gunn radioed that they were leaving the airport's control area. They were never heard from again. The wreckage was scattered over a 200-foot area. The landing gear and part of a wing were caught in the trees. The fuselage had gone almost straight into the side of the mountain, about 100 feet farther on. The cabin was crumpled from the impact, but the fuselage and tail section were mostly intact. Harry Pritchard Shaw and his wife Margaret McRae Shaw died on October 23, 1957, as the result of that plane crash. They were buried at Elmwood Cemetery in Charlotte, North Carolina. The pilot of the aircraft, Clarence Benjamin Gunn, also died. He was laid to rest at Sharon Memorial Cemetery in Charlotte. The bodies of Mrs. Shaw and Ben Gunn were found within five feet of the craft. Harry Shaw's body was thrown about 40 feet farther up the mountainside. Investigators stated that they all appeared to have died on impact. The cause of the crash was believed to have been turbulent winds and heavy rain. The third and final fatal accident that may have contributed to the lore surrounding Highway 107 occurred on August 26, 1963. Three men, Pilot Alvin D. Sisk, and passengers Robert M. Shelton and Frederick G. Smith, all from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, were in a single-engine Cessna Skylane en route from Tuscaloosa to Washington, D.C. After a stop in Chattanooga, Tennessee to refuel, the men were on their way to pick up a fourth passenger, Bob Scoggins, at the Spartanburg Airport before continuing to Washington, D.C. 
At what they believed to be 1,100 feet, the plane encountered dense fog, so Sisk dropped to just 4,500 feet to try to get below it. However, the plane's altimeter was faulty. Much closer to the ground than they thought they were, the plane struck trees and then crashed into Medlin Mountain. And like the B-25 and Ben Gunn's Piper, the Cessna crashed a mile from the fish hatchery, just 100 feet from Highway 107. Frederick Smith received only minor injuries. He and Robert Shelton, who'd suffered a broken arm, managed to pull Sisk, who one newspaper described as weighing over 350 pounds, from the wreckage. Though Alvin D. Sisk initially survived the crash, he had sustained severe head and chest injuries and died at Oconee Memorial Hospital a short time later. His body was sent to his mother in Kentucky for burial. Interviewed by Sheriff Buck Crenshaw, the men initially claimed that they were on their way to Washington, D.C. for what they called a business trip. Though Bob Scoggins, the passenger they were on their way to pick up when the crash occurred, stated that he planned to continue with his trip, the other men said that their immediate concern was with the family of the dead pilot and that they intended to forego their trip to attend his funeral. So what business was it that they were headed to in Washington, D.C.? Pamphlets and other literature promoting the Ku Klux Klan was found in the wreckage of their plane, and it was determined that Robert M. Shelton was the Imperial Grand Wizard and Grand Dragon of the Alabama Ku Klux Klan. The men traveling with him, Smith and Sisk, were also active in the Alabama Klan, and Scoggins was active in Klan affairs in the Piedmont area. On August 28, 1963, two days after the Klansman's crash, in the shadow of the Lincoln Monument and in front of a quarter of a million people, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech. These three incidents account for 10 separate deaths, all within a few hundred feet of Highway 107, all near Moody Springs, and all of which fit within the framework of the story that Nancy Roberts had crafted about a plane crash in bad weather. But there's one more event that I'd like to put forward as a possible alternate explanation for Highway 107's hitchhiker. On the night of July 13, 1963, a Wahala auto dealer named Ernest Fowler found a body. Fowler went to the home of Jack Lombard a few miles away and said that he had thought that there had been a traffic accident and asked them to call an ambulance. When officers arrived at the scene, they discovered a man lying face down just two feet off the west side of Highway 107, 16 miles north of Wahala. The dead man was identified as 31-year-old Melvin Eugene Hunter, a resident of Cashiers, North Carolina, just across the state line. Police said there was no sign of a scuffle. None of the man's personal belongings, a wallet containing $40, a knife, and a pair of homemade knuckles, had been taken, and his truck remained parked just off the side of the highway. Hunter had been shot once, leaving a small, neat hole near his heart, but no weapon was found. Melvin Eugene Hunter died on July 13, 1964, the result of that single gunshot wound. He was laid to rest at Glenview Baptist Church Cemetery. One of 12 children, Hunter was survived by his father, seven brothers, and four sisters. Police immediately sought Ernest Fowler, who'd left before they'd arrived at the scene, for questioning. They looked for him all night, but were unable to locate him. The next morning at 5 a.m., he walked in voluntarily to the sheriff's office to give his statement. Asked where he'd been the previous evening, Fowler claimed that he'd gone home and worked on a car in the woods near his home until after 3.30 a.m., and then when he got back to his house, his wife told him that the police were looking for him, so he came in. The sheriff already knew that the two men knew each other. Fowler had done work on Hunter's truck, and the two men had mutual acquaintances in the Cashiers, North Carolina area. 
When questioned, Fowler's story changed from what he had initially told Jack Lombard the day before when he'd shown up to call an ambulance. He told police now that he was on his way from Cashiers back to Walhalla when Hunter's truck blocked his path. He said Hunter came up to his pickup and shoved what looked like a sawed-off rifle in his face. Fowler claimed to have grabbed the rifle and in the ensuing scuffle the weapon discharged. Then, Fowler says, he went to the Lombard home to summon aid. Fowler told police that he didn't know why Hunter would want to stop him. He told the police that Hunter must have thought he was someone else. But Fowler, who papers would later state was well known for his truthfulness, was hiding something. Officers also questioned Clara Carter McCall of Cashiers, North Carolina. Fowler had been at her home just a few hours before Hunter was found shot to death. McCall told officers in a sworn statement that she had known Fowler intimately for about the past six years. She told police that she had been with Fowler, driving toward a river, when Hunter first accosted them. Hunter attempted to block them then with his truck and had chased them with a double-edged axe. She'd told Fowler not to stop and that Hunter looked mad. They stayed a while at the river, and they didn't see Hunter on their way back, though after returning to her home, they noticed that he was parked nearby. Other witnesses said that McCall had been seen with Hunter on the morning of his death. McCall admitted as much, saying that Hunter had helped repair her car, but she'd left and hadn't seen him again until the confrontation later that afternoon. She said that she believed that he was jealous of Fowler, that he'd showed up at her house several times in the past few days, and that he'd been drinking heavily. But she also said that she'd never dated him. He was just a friend of the family, and her parents had been nice to him. Officers were unable to find the sawed-off rifle that Fowler claimed Hunter had at the scene, but were quickly able to determine that he had been killed by a 22 caliber bullet. They confiscated two 22 caliber rifles and a 22 caliber target pistol from Fowler's home. However, ballistics tests showed that none of those weapons matched the gun that had fired the bullet that had killed Hunter. On July 23rd, Ernest Fowler was charged with the murder of Melvin Eugene Hunter. His trial began on November 14, 1963, and just two days later, the jury was given the case at 11.30 a.m. They deliberated for just over an hour before returning a not guilty verdict. Fowler's wife was at his side when the verdict was read. Clara McCall, who had testified about their affair and the events leading up to Hunter's death, was not in court when the verdict came back. I must admit, I'm not entirely sure what to make of this legend. On the one hand, for as much as I like its uniqueness, it's troubling that it doesn't seem to be found in print anywhere outside of Nancy Roberts' book. No mentions that I can find in any newspaper or folklore journal before or after Roberts' book was published. Given her propensity to tell tales for entertainment, it's entirely possible that she just made this story up. After all, none of the men that we'd found who died in plane crashes there has any reason to be headed back toward Greenville. None would even have a good reason, apart from maybe it being along the trail where the wreckage was found, to want to go from the lookout to Moody Spring. But even so, I don't think Roberts made this story up. At least, not all of it. I think it's more likely that she heard about Highway 107's vanishing hitchhiker from the only man in her story whose name she didn't change, Oconee State Park Superintendent Bob Cothran. After all, how likely is it that Roberts would have known the history of this region well enough to craft a story of a plane crash that just happened to be on a lonely stretch of road where no less than three of those crashes happened? And if Cothran was telling the truth about dozens of people having reported to him encounters with a ghost, can we completely dismiss that their reports were occurring not only where there were three fatal plane crashes, but where another man was involved in an emotionally charged altercation 
that ended his life suddenly near the exact spot where the hitchhiker waits for his ride. Maybe I'm biased. Maybe I just want there to be a rain-soaked ghost walking this highway because I like this story so much. Or maybe, just maybe, all of those people really were seeing the man in the black raincoat. Epitaph is an independent, bi-weekly podcast. If you like what you've heard, maybe leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you may be listening, and maybe tell your friends about us. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can find us on the web at epitaphpod.com. You can also find us on Twitter at, at @epitaphpod, and by searching for Epitaph Podcast on Facebook. If you've got a few extra dollars, consider joining our Patreon. There you'll get access to Epitaph The Others, our special subscriber-only shows, and we've got a few extra things in the works there, too. This episode was researched, written, edited, recorded, and produced by me. I'm your host, Jason. Thanks for listening.